But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that uh, as the preacher today brings your word to us, Lord, that you would give him supernatural ability and insight, Lord, and, and, and God inspire your spirit, Lord, so that the words he says uh, will penetrate our hearts and uh, enable us to apply what we hear today to our lives, Lord, and that by them we would be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our third week in Second uh, Corinthians. And I'm entitling uh, this sermon, um, Motivated by Love. Uh, already you've probably noticed that uh, 2 Corinthians can be a little confusing. It's like we're entering into an already existing conversation, and we are. The church at Corinth is a young church and somewhat immature. Uh, things have happened, and a correspondence to have occurred beyond what we saw preached earlier last year in 1 Corinthians. And so to give us a little historical context, let us uh, think about uh, the existence of this church. On Paul's second missionary journey, he planted himself the church at Corinth, and that was around 51 AD. According to uh, Acts 18.11, uh, Paul stayed in Corinth a year and a half, uh, teaching the Word of God among them. A year or so after he leaves, in 53 or 54 AD, uh, the church writes Paul for counsel about a number of issues. As a young church, they obviously have lots of questions. And so Paul patiently responds to them in the letter we have as 1 Corinthians, where he addresses divisions in the church, church disciplines, civil litigation, marriage divorce, spiritual gifts, the future resurrection. Uh, 
Sometime after that, in the following year, Paul actually visits Corinth again. And when he's there, he has to address them over some issue in a fairly firm tone. It's not uh, what is considered a pleasant visit by Paul. And that's what our text references in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I wrote to you out of, or uh, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. After that painful visit, Paul needs to address them again. But instead of another painful visit, he writes them a letter. And this letter is what's referenced in verse 4 of chapter 2. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So he's made a hard visit and written a very difficult letter. We don't have that letter. It's not preserved for us for all times. But it seems that that letter was calling the church at Corinth to exercise discipline against some divisive person in the church. The next year, late 55, early 56 AD, Paul writes the church again, which is what we have as 2 Corinthians, and that is where we're at this morning. Paul has said and written some hard things to this young church, but in all of it, he is motivated by love for them. He wants the best for them. These hard things have caused some tension in their relationship. And there are those in the church at Corinth who want to exploit the tension between Paul and this young church for their own benefits. They want to belittle Paul and build themselves up. They seek to gain authority and influence in the young church. They draw attention to Paul's suffering as a sign, not of spiritual strength, but of some undefined weakness in Paul. Kind of like Job's friends. You know, you can almost hear them saying, would a man of God suffer like that? If you ask me, it sounds a little like God is disciplining him. They ridicule Paul's appearance and his use of language. In 2 Corinthians 10, uh, they say Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily appearance is, is weak. And his speech is of no account or contemptible. They even accuse Paul of not being a man of his word. Didn't Paul say he was going to come and visit? And instead he sends us this letter. Can you really trust a man like that? As Kyle said last week, they were trying to undermine Paul because of his travel plans. Any and every angle possible was used to put Paul down and build themselves up. For what purpose? 
Out of love for the church, for their good? No. They were in it for themselves. They were building their own kingdom in their own way. In fact, Paul refers to these individuals later on in 2 Corinthians 11, 13, and 14 when he says they are false apostles and deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The gospel, in Paul's view, is at stake. And he is concerned for this young, immature church. In that same chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I myself betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And no wonder... Uh, for even, oh, I'm messing up left and right here. Um, and I even lost my place. Isn't that amazing? I am presenting you as a per, pure, pure <laughs> virgin to Christ. But I am afraid, got to make myself cry, that um, just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's essence saying your spiritual well-being is at stake and I am concerned that you are drifting from Christ. So if that's all true, if Paul's concern is so great for them, why didn't he visit? Why did he only send a letter? Why did he change his plans? Why didn't he do what he said he would do? Paul doesn't visit and sends only a letter, not because he doesn't care about the Corinthians, but because he loves them. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Again, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. The, the change was due to the Corinthians themselves. Paul was being charged with fickleness or apathy. But Paul's change of plans was motivated by a love for the Corinthians. He had already come to them and spoken strongly to them. He had come with his full authority and exercised a certain amount of apostolic oversight. And because of that, Paul knew the relationships with the Corinthian church was presently strained. So instead of another apostolic visit, calling on them to do what they should do, exercise church discipline, he writes them instead. As an apostle of Christ, he could have come, and he could have spoken to them and commanded them, 
to exercise discipline. But he wisely realized a letter would be better. He was motivated by love for their good. Think about it. If Paul, and if you have kids, you you can relate to this. If Paul had come in person and told them what to do, the church might have had an emotional, knee-jerk sort of reaction. Fighting against Paul's instruction. Then Paul would have to address that as well. It seems that instead of that, he thought it would be better to write. A personal appearance would only escalate the tension, not bring resolution. And so he writes them this letter so they can process it over time. So that they can think about it and the Spirit can work in their hearts leading to obedience. Paul doesn't want to leverage his authority over them, but rather the opposite. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. Not that we lord it over you, your faith. In other words, I don't want to tell you what to do. But we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. This this joy that uh, Paul is talking about is not some smug, feel-good kind of feeling, but the joy of resting in Christ, knowing that you're obeying him and finding satisfaction in him. Paul is saying, "We, we want to come alongside of you, beseeching you, as brothers in Christ, to discipline this divisive person. We can understand the the hesitation of this young church, can't we? Church discipline is not easy, and it certainly is not pleasant. But it's for the good of the church, and for the good of the unrepentant sinner. If Paul had come to Corinth, he would have come to carry out discipline himself. Uh, Keep your finger where you're at. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, 13. In verse 2, he says, I warn those who sinned before and all others... And I warn them now while absent as I did when I was present on my second visit. That if I come again, I will not spare them. If Paul comes now, he will have to come to judge exercising his authority over the church. But that's not what Paul wants to do. Look at verses 9 and 10 of that same chapter 13. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. So that when I do come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not tearing down. Christ gave 
Paul authority for the purpose of building up his church. But that responsibility is not just to the apostles, is it? That's to all of us in a different measure. We are all to build up the church. Specifically, the the local church of which God has made us a part. In Ephesians 4, we're told that God gave spiritual leaders to to the church to equip it for our shared work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, so that we may no longer be children tossed about by the waves and wind of false teaching and human cunning and crafty deceitful schemes. But rather, what are we to do? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is our head. We, each of us, are responsible to speak truth to one another in love. Sometimes that truth may be hard truth, right? But whether it's an encouragement or a hard truth, it should always be motivated by love. Speak truth in love. Two weeks ago, Warren Betcher uh, preached for us on Hebrews 13.3. What, what does that text say? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The title of that sermon was Sanctification, a Community Project. It takes a community to build a Christian, doesn't it? We are a community, a spiritual family, created to need one another. We need one another's encouragement. Sometimes we need correction because of the deceitfulness of sin. Our sin, by its very nature, tends to blind us, doesn't it? Isn't it amazing how how often we don't see sin in our own life? But we sure can see it in others, can't we? Like romper room? I see Rob and his sin. I see Tony and her sin. But I don't see my own. We need the clear-sightedness of brothers and sisters in Christ who love us enough to be willing to speak truth in love. The, The motivation is not putting others in their place or making myself look more spiritual. The motivation is always love for God and love for neighbor, for one another. Doing what is best for them to the glory of God. Sometimes that means sending an encouraging note. If God, if you feel an inkling to write someone an encouraging note, do it. 
I understand that feeling. You get, you get that sense, and then you yeah, I'll do it later. But the, later, the, the, the moment's gone. Do it right now. Uh, because the Spirit may be putting them on your heart, and they may need your encouragement. Sometimes it's encouraging notes. Sometimes it's a difficult face-to-face conversation over a cup of coffee. Always have coffee. (laughs) Coffee makes everything better. Sometimes it is listening. Did Skylar just ask for a cup of coffee? The pastor said, coffee makes everything better, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's listening and not saying a word. Because you already know that they know the truth. I remember uh, back in college, a friend that came up to me and started talking to me about some issue of obedience to God. And they spent 30 minutes telling me why it was not possible for them to obey God. Believe it or not, I didn't say a word. I knew that they knew the truth. By the end of their dissertation, their words had convicted themselves, and they obeyed God. We need to ask God for wisdom, don't we? When should we speak? When should we be silent? What should we say? How should we pray for them? What would be best for them in this situation? But whatever we do, it should be motivated by the greatest command. Love God and love neighbor. And a good guide would be what's called the golden rule. In Matthew 7, 12, Jesus said, In everything, do to others what you would have them do for you. For this sums up the law And the prophets. If I were them, what would I need to encourage me and my obedience to God? Paul wrote a letter motivated by love for the Corinthians. Look again at uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish, of And of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul's previous painful letter was motivated by Paul's love. And so was its effect. The church discipline that followed. Paul called the church at Corinth to exercise formal church discipline against the divisive person, which they obviously did. And the reason we know that they did is because now, in this present letter, Paul calls the church to restore 
the one who was disciplined because he had apparently repented. And that's the purpose of discipline, isn't it? Look at verse 6 and 7 of our text, chapter 2. This punishment by the majority, the church discipline, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The church discipline accomplished its intent and should now cease. What is uh, church discipline and how should it proceed? Uh, Jesus himself gives us the guidelines in Matthew 18. And he's addressing when there's some serious unrepentant sin in the church. And there in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, go to them privately. If they won't listen to your confrontation, you take uh, two or three others with you. And then in Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. If they are so hardened by sin, then think of them and treat them as an unbeliever. In this final step of church discipline, the local church, with Christ's authority, says as best as we can tell, you are not a Christian. That's not saying the church is making them a Christian or making them not a Christian. It's making an evaluation as Christ's authority on earth. And so we cannot be in full fellowship with you, and we cannot allow you to take the Lord's Supper, God's public means of grace. It, that's not an individual making that decision, is it? It's the church. It's a judgment of the church. But the local church, as Christ's authority on earth, has been given this means by Christ himself. Church discipline can be hard, but it is, when done correctly, an act of love. We are motivated by love for the unrepentant sinner, acting on their behalf for the sake of their eternal soul. If they have no conviction of sin, no sense of godly sorrow, no repentance, then that indicates and that is evidence that the Holy Spirit may not be present in them. Because the Holy Spirit does what? Convicts of sin and leads in righteousness. And if they do not have the Holy Spirit in them, then they are not regenerated. And if they are not regenerated, they are still in their sin and under God's judgment. And that, my friends, is a frightful place to be. And so the church and its members must exercise discipline when it's necessary. To neglect it and allow someone to think they're okay when they are not is the most unloving thing we can do. 
Think about it with disciplining your children. Because it's, it's the same picture, isn't it? Is it better to just let your kids do what they want without consequence? Or does a little difficult situation now save them from a lifetime of grief? If we don't, as I said, it is the most unloving thing to allow people to think they're okay with God when they're not. That sort of callous attitude is not motivated by love for others. It actually is motivated by what? Love for self. I don't want to be bothered. Or more likely, I'm just afraid of all the negative reaction. We need to see church discipline as a gift from God to his church. It flows from Christ to his bride. It is part of the dowry. It's part of what's ours because we're married to Christ. And he gives it to us to fight the deceitfulness of sin that leads to a hardening of the heart. As we are married to Christ through our faith union, we are one with him. And as we are one with him, we are therefore what? Part of one another. Our fellowship as a local church demonstrated in receiving the Lord's Supper together is a fruit of our fellowship with Christ. Unrepentance is both a source and a result of spiritual separation from Christ, a lack of fellowship. And if a person has no fellowship with Christ, then they have no true fellowship in the church, do they? What do they need? They need us to love them. They need us to pray for them. They need us to evangelize them. But they cannot receive the fellowship of the church. Church discipline is a visible manifestation of the reality of that spiritual separation. The purpose of church discipline is purity in the church and a call to the sinner to repent out of love for the church and a love for that sinner. It is painful, but it is necessary. It's a kind of this hurts me as much as it hurts you kind of process. The goal is not to get rid of the riffraff. The goal is always to restore true fellowship in the life of the church. Here in Corinth, the church discipline accomplished what it was intended to do. It brought about repentance. And so with repentance should come forgiveness. Verse 7 and 8 of our text. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, the divisive person, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. It was for love that the divisive person had discipline applied to him. Now it's because of love that that same person should be restored and forgiven. 
that person repented, and so forgiveness must be extended. And fellowship in the household of God restored. It's not a, I got my eye on you, long-armed sort of restoration. It's complete, and it is total. Just as an unrepentant sinner is not in fellowship with Christ, nor his local church, so a, a true believer in repentance and forgiven by Christ must be affirmed by the church and the reality of membership. We extend forgiveness and fellowship as an affirmation that that person is already forgiven and in fellowship with Christ himself. For a local church not to forgive and thereby not extend fellowship to the one who is forgiven and in fellowship with Christ is for that local church to sin against Christ himself. We should forgive the way we are forgiven. And that is what Paul is calling the church at Corinth to do. Later in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 20 of that chapter, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal of reconciliation through us. Our ministry of reconciliation is is not just for those outside the church. It's not just evangelism. It's extending forgiveness and fellowship inside the church to be reconciled one to the other as we are reconciled to Christ. As ambassadors of Christ, reconciliation is for the church. We should be anxious to forgive as we grow into Christ's image because Christ is a forgiving God. And we know that he has forgiven us. In Ephesians 4, 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. What should our forgiveness look like? The way God in Christ has already forgiven us. Our forgiveness should be motivated by love, our love for God and our love flowing out of that for one another. As we are increasingly conformed to Christ, our forgiveness should reflect how God in Christ has forgiven us. In uh, uh, 1 John 4, 10, it says this, This is love. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for sins. Why? So that he could forgive us. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, while we were rebels, while we were opposed to and hated God, Christ died for us. God's love for his people is so immense that he lived our life and died in our place. As one of us, the eternal son, faced the hell judgment of God so that we might forever be the children of God. We are the beloved. And God's forgiveness is not partial, nor is it probationary. Let's give it six months and see how it works out. God's forgiveness of us is total and it is complete. The Holy One cried on the cross, it is finished. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we what? Might become the righteousness of God. And so what does this forgiveness of God look like? Psalm 103 Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin from us. As far as the east is from the west, you can't get any farther apart. So far has he removed our sin from us. Micah 7, 19. God will cast our sin into the depths of the sea. And then in, I I love this, uh, in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and and the new earth had no sea. God casts our sin into the depths of the sea and then he remakes reality and there is no sea. It no longer exists. That, my friend, is how we are to forgive one another. Like God in Christ has forgiven us totally and completely. Now, we all uh, know that. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard it, you've probably said it. Uh, You may be nodding your head this morning. But that sort of forgiveness can be hard. People, even Christians, sin against us and hurt us in all kinds of different ways. It can be hard to let go, to forget the past. I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Well, let me highlight this truth about God. God doesn't forgive and forget. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows the beginning from the end, and this God cannot forget. 
But he says this in Jeremiah 31, 43, which is repeated again in Hebrews 8, 12. He says, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The God who created and sustains everything does not forget, yet he chooses not to remember. He does not bring our sin up again because he has dealt with it. This is what God calls us to, to forgive as he forget, to choose not to remember, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I know it seems impossible, but we are the new creation in Christ, are we not? And we have the Holy Spirit of power, the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same Holy Spirit resides in us. Empowering us to do what God commands. And we know, even if we struggle with this today, there is a day coming when God will himself perfect us. We will forgive fully and completely. God calls us to do it now. He calls us to, to struggle in it, if that's a struggle. But there is a day coming when we will forgive fully and completely. God will do it. When we don't forgive, according to verse 10, we are playing into the schemes of Satan, who wants us to be unforgiving. Of course Satan wants division in the church. Of course he wants you to hold on resentments. So do we want to obey God? Or would we rather be deceived by our enemy, Satan? If you are here this morning and you struggle with forgiveness. You are carrying a burden that you don't need to. I had a friend just tell me uh, uh, within the last week how uh, uh, someone that they hadn't forgiven, someone they, that had hurt them, they had the opportunity uh, to confess their sin to them, that they'd been holding on to this and ask that person to forgive them. And they said it was like a burden was lifted. They had experienced the joy of resting in Christ and obedience and trusting that situation to God. When we don't forgive, why don't we? Because we think that the person who hurt us is going to get away with it. And so we want to judge them and punish them. It's not for us to judge and to punish. That's up to God, isn't it? Entrusted to God, God will deal with them. You obey him. All of our interaction with others is to be motivated by love. A love for God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength flowing into a love for one another. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we love you and we love your word. We want to obey it. We want to understand it, but sometimes it is hard. And so this morning, Father, we ask that your spirit 
would convict us in ways that we need, that you would encourage us in all the ways that we need, that this morning your spirit would work in us for your glory's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.